had no keyboards. So I did a little demo for one of my brother's friends who had a band. That guy was based in Portland, Oregon, and I, in Fort Lauderdale. And I played on a, I recorded some things so I could hear my skills. The little chops that I had that weren't really much. And the band was in Portland, so I flew to Portland. And the bass player was Jeff Lorber's bass player, that fusion keyboardist. And the first opening of the, the opening of the show was Carnival Nine by Emerson Lake and Palmer. It was a rock, classical rock, in A flat. And I had a musical director was Joe Bell, who was a graduate of uh, Berkeley, and he saw my talent. And I sat in this room. For my 19th birthday, I sat in this room in Portland, Oregon, learning this Carnival Nine thing for two weeks, and I was, I, you know, <laughs> I don't have, the, I don't have technique. I don't know. I wasn't taught technique. I just played as I played. Yeah. And I called my brother. Get me out of here. I can't do this. Carnival Nine was like this crazy, crazy song. The classical rock solo in the middle was. You know, you, it would fuck any little kid up, bro. Yeah, it so, definitely, so did you stay or leave? Well, I stayed because the, this New York guitar player, Joe Bell, was a kind soul, and he also saw that I had talent, so he made me learn it. Good. And he started showing me shit. And we were traveling, would buy me books on, uh, you know, scales and just hand and scales just the basics that I don't know. And I started learning that shit. And um, this was a show band. So not only was I playing keyboards, I would also start singing and coming out front and doing a number because I, I, I was oh. good looking. And that's where performance started coming in because I was a good looking kid. And then... We got video of that I'll share too. You do? I think you do. I do have... Yeah, you have to share that because I remember watching that one time with you couple times because I asked you, I'm like, you sing, bro? And you're like, yeah. I have pictures, but I don't know if there's any audio of that, but I just sing, I just do. Well, so what happened was uh, the bass player, we're in the, on the road in Omaha, Lincoln, Nebraska, this seven-piece band, you know, we did shows. We did two sets of music, and then the, the lead singer would come out and do a show set. We had dancers, and then we do the last two sets without, it was like one show a night. And the bass player took off. So they put a little Fender bass keyboard for me. Oh. Have you seen it? Did it's, they pay you more then? No. No? Of course. I, and I was then, back then, I said, you got to pay me more. No, he didn't pay me more. But uh, they put a little Fender. Yeah, it's a monophonic. Monophonic, yeah. and it plays bass. And I started kicking bass on that shit. <laughs> and I did the whole show. And then I started like, oh. The next octopus. thing you know, the drummer's gone. <laughs> yeah, because he had the rhythm composer. You can start putting. I had an I had an, an emulator drum machine. Oh, you did. Eventually, that wound up, and I started making tracks in my room with four track. I had a four track cassette player. Three. I had one of them. And so what I would do is I would I would bounce that. I would do four tracks, and I would bounce that. I would do three tracks. Bounce those to the fourth, mm -hmm. and then start doing that. The now, other three, then you have but two. But you start getting deterioration. But I would do that because yeah. I, 
And the drum machine, I would record the drum machine first because that would keep me the time. And I think I would record that in stereo. So there's two tracks that are gone. And then I would play something on top of that, put the bass with the drums, bounce those to two, and I got two left. And it was a port of, I don't even remember what the fuck it was, but I had a I had a monitor, I had a, you know, like a floor monitor in my in my in my hotel room. And I was creating shit in there. That's that's where it all started like that. Damn. And I got off the road and somebody wanted me in Miami. A friend of mine, a, a singer. Because I had a I had a ten piece band in Miami during the Don Johnson. I met Don Johnson and the Miami Vice cast at Monty Trainers. They came in to have lunch. They were doing the pilot there. And I had a ten piece band that kicked ass. We did Earth, Wind, and Fire, the Manhattan Transfer. We had seven lead singers, and people would come into that little room on the bay, and they were like, holy shit. I had the best of the best because I was paying, and I had like, I think the uh, the budget was like 25, 37, 2750 bucks a week, and everybody got some good money. I had the horn section that was Miami Sound Machine later on, horn section, and I had killer musicians, and we... You know, I was on the road and I got off the road. They offered me the house gig in Miami. And then I uh, I ran into these these two guys that that were weed. They they were weed they they, they brought in weed on speedboats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just that they just dealt with weed, but they started backing up this black singer that I had. And they used the they used part of that money as if it was um they built a little studio. They bought a Soundcraft Ghost, maybe? No, no, no. Way before the ghost. Before that, okay. It was a Soundcraft, I think it was a four bus four bus console. And we had a QX one, which is a sequencer on a floppy disc, MIDI based with DX seven, then we got the DX seven racks. Mm-hmm. And we started working with that. They built a little studio downstairs, but they were dope dealers. They would, you know, they had 15 people, families, and they would pick up bales of weed off the coast of Miami, and and I was getting paid through that. And that's how I started the studio stuff. And then eventually, mm, the name got out, my name got out around town, and I started, I started getting gigs. Yeah. My first big gig was with Nick Martinelli, Nick was out of Philly. Nick worked at Sigma Sound. Nick did all of uh, Regina Bell, Rick, Teddy Pendergrass. Mm. He did uh, what's her name? Home, Home is where I want to be. What's the name of that singer? Uh, he, Outside my. Um. Anyway. Nick Martinelli, uh, we worked on Ghostbusters with with Ray, uh, Parker. Ray Parker Jr. And uh, Nick left Philadelphia and came down to Miami and he got he called me. Somebody gave him my number. Betty Wright's son-in-law gave my number to Nick. And he told me, this guy, he's done Regina Bell. He's done Mickey Howard, who he did... Uh, a lot of big R&B acts in, in up in Philly, and he's going to call you, and he called me. And this guy gave me work for years. 
I worked with Nick for like 10 years. I did Diana Ross with Nick. I did mm. Gerald Alston. I did Saida Garrett for Quincy Jones, Saida Garrett Records. We did, it was every, we were at the Hit Factory in, in Miami for years, every day working, working, working. Yeah. And then I was working with the Latin producers. So I was making seven, 8,000 bucks a week just doing sequencing. I started buying computers. I, started, I bought a Macintosh SE and I had Digital Performer. And then I started building my racks of modules. And next thing you know, I had a, I bought a Soundtracks, an English console that was. Um, like 42 channels, 16 bus, mm -hmm. and it had a uh, TT patch bay. Nice. And that patch Chinese bay had telephone. to be that patch bay had to be configured because <laughs> we had to make the TT connectors. You had to make the connectors. Well, we had to make the connectors from the back end. The TT, the TT wire, the TT in inputs Inquisite, were there. Yeah. That's just the TTY. Right, yeah, TT it's the back TT. end of the actual The back end bag. is where you make them balance or not, the depending balance. on what you want to do. We had four, I had four stereo channels <laughs> that were dedicated for stereo channels. Then I had the 16 bus on the side. Yes. And then you had a pan to go to the, so you know, one, one two, two, three, three. four. Yeah. Blah, and then the back of them had to be, so I had a guy soldering there, and I go, you're a freak, bro, because that shit sucked. Yeah, I can't do that he either. He had to solder cables because that went to the, he had to connect all the back-end TTs, and those things had to be connected to outboard gear, which was quarter-inch yeah. or XLR, and that wiring configuration, if you take the back of an XLR, you got the three, the ground, mm -hmm. the hot, and the... So you got to sit there, you know. You know what that is, bro. That's, that's tedious. That's, the, that's shit is like, there you go. That's when you delegate. That's when I don't want to be the quarterback. Yeah. Right, exactly. You, that's you, when you, you don't want to do everything. Your, you can't wear the hat to do it all. <laughs> you know, that's when you like, you, you do that. But the guy was into it. So I had a big-ass console in this little apartment and the speakers that I happened to to use like five months ago, and I used to own these speakers. I had three pairs of these speakers, I'm going to tell you now, and I hadn't heard them in years. And my friend in Columbia said to me, Eddie, I, I didn't bring my speakers. I, did, I should have brought mine. Mm -hmm. I can only give you these speakers that I have, and I'm going to give you a, 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 a clue, and you're going to know what speakers they are. It's got a D50 crown amp. What speakers would go with a D50 crown amp? Yamaha NS10s. Tens. Remember? Yeah, the back connectors. They usually, the, the, the Alesis 100 amp usually used to run those. Right, yeah. But, but the before crown, that, it was a D70, sit. D75 amp, of the thin little crown D75 yeah. amp that would sit there, and they would power those NS10s. And those NS10s were so wacky sounding, I was like five months ago, I was like, bro, are these speakers broke? Yeah. There's no Eddie. That's how they are. You know, today we have speakers that, that uh, you know, respond. Yeah. But those were. 
what the, made, originals, what, the originals. The originals with the Bali with the Bollywood. Yes. The the enclosure was what made those speakers. Yeah. That wood, that wood was discontinued because they were knocking so many trees down in Bali, but that wood made that case. But they were mid-rangey speakers. But if it, your shit sounded good on that speaker, it would sound good. And don't forget the records in the 80s and the 90s, subwoofers did not come into play until the 2000s when we started now listening to below 90, yeah. below 100 to 32, you know, that whole range of sub. Didn't come yeah, into true. play until hip hop and all that music started coming in. And we started realizing shit, we just opened up a whole nother set of frequencies that we didn't we never listened to before. Because if you listen to all the records in the seventies and the eighties, it was all the lowest that would hit would be ninety, eighty. Eighty at most, yeah. Maybe not. And you and you wouldn't even hear it on, you know, because our even our car radios and all of our speaker systems at home were not they couldn't handle any of They didn't handle because that, those frequencies were never heard. Yeah. Even these speakers, they, they respond to, to lower lower end, but, you know, back in the day, unless you went to a recording studio, but you wouldn't hear those frequencies, not even in a car. Everything was mid-rangey. Yeah. And the 125 was like your low end. 125, yeah. if you, Get your bass. That was your bass. Turn it up. 125 was, was what kicked Hitting that here. chest. Disco music, 125. It wasn't boom, boom. It was do, 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 yeah, so, more of a thud. You know, the NS10s were responding to, very interesting how that's evolved also, which is a whole other conversation. But Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so that's what got you into the studio elements. Got me into studio. I started doing a lot of session work, and then people started calling me and calling me. And then, and then what, what was the point? where it became less now about a hired gun and more so now about composition, playing a when role I went in, in the song When I writing. got into hip-hop. When you got into the hip-hop Yeah, because now by the, time, by the time I got called to work, Cool and Dre were two producers in Miami. They are two producers in Miami. DJ Khaled all came from the same family. Mm -hmm. And they called me. The guy who discovered Cool and Dre... He brought them to me, and then they discovered me, and then they told Khaled, they told DJ Khaled about me, and DJ Khaled came to my house to do an intro for a record. I'm talking 19, early 90s. DJ Khaled was uh, starting to be a DJ in the Miami area, mm -hmm. and he was blown away. I gave him uh, one of those epic intros, whatever, and, uh, he, you know, he paid me. I think he paid me fifteen hundred bucks to do like a, a minute intro, and I thought, oh shit, this guy's got some money. Came in an Escalade, and then I wasn't a hip hop guy. You know, I was working with so many different people that it was it was just it was always about music. music. Yes, it wasn't yeah. about you know I got I got I got to eat a certain dinner because that's what these guys do, or you know if you do salsa, salsa musicians are you know. I want to. I can tell you what every, what every type of music people they, they everybody eats something different yes. <laughs> by their food by their food, <laughs> you know. But I had I had clients from all over the world, you know, India, J Jamaica. I'm in Miami. They're hitting me up to come in and play, and I was like, you know, every time I was like challenged by some style of music, I was like all for it because I wanted to, I wanted to first 
kick their ass and 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 let them know you hit the honeybee with That's me, right. buddy, because I wanted to have them back as clients. Yeah, because the idea of the clientele is a, is a circle. You want your clients, you work this guy, and then this guy shows up, this guy shows up, and then that guy up there winds up on the clock again. Yeah. And, then, and you know, you give them all. To, so you, that's, that's the circle of clients that I like to have that rotation. So you never run out of work because I don't work for a company. Yeah. And the, I don't and work for, you know, I have to make money for everything that I do. It just all adds up, little things. Well, here's, a, here's another misconception. Well, hey, how much am I getting paid for this? Go ahead. Checks in the mail. But another misconception about people trying to become successful, right, as a songwriter or a composer is, well, you got to sign a publishing deal and then you're set. Well, so what happened is I'm yeah. with Cool and Dre. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the hip-hop world is just where things got... Interesting. Yeah, because back before then, if there's three of us in a room, we split everything equally. Yeah. Now all of a sudden music became one side of the, the pie and then the singer and the melody was another side of the pie and that was bullshit. Yeah. If I did the music, I should get half of it. Whoever was involved with the music, they started splitting it up like that. So. Well, who are some of the clients, who are some of the artists that you got to collaborate with or... Right I have songs that I wrote with that I'm that I have a publishing with. Yeah. Well, Little Wayne and Buster Rhymes and Fat Joe and Queen Latifah and uh Usher and Chris Brown, Madonna, Lady Gaga, um Did Lincoln Park Jim Class Heroes, Lincoln Park, um one with Queen Latifah and Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Um I mean, there's many, 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 but the the miss. So when I started getting placements on those, then I got a rec. I got a. I got a uh, publishing deal. My publishing deal actually didn't come from American music; it came from Latin, because I had a Luis Fonsi record who wrote the guy who did the Despacito. Yes, I had a Luis Fonsi record, and then I had an Olga Tanyon. Olga Tanyon does merengue. Which I is remember a, Olga. I did a record. And, yeah. Okay, so Olga's from mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, and I had those two records, and I had a. The guy who played keyboards for my brother's band back in the day when I started show band, he was at Sony. And he said, I can sign you, but wait, I'm moving over to Universal in a, in a month. Wait. Yeah. And he got me $20,000. I signed that deal. And that was a tough deal because back then it was, not back then, it was like in the early 2000s, it was... Uh, Five songs MDR, which means that five songs, a hundred percent publishing, I had to be mine. That's my my delivery. That means that five. you have to write the song, all the music, and that's hundred percent your publishing. You got to have five of those. So if you got twenty percent of one or ten percent of one, you got to add it all up until it was five hundred percent. Yeah, dude, that, that's before into, you know in the, in the seventies and eighties. Sure thing, that's no problem. We can make that happen. But in today's world where you look at the credit lines no, and no, 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 12 no. people involved. Well, that's even later on after that. But uh, yeah, the hip-hop. Then I started adding in the hip-hop pieces to it, and those were more money. That was more money for my publishing recoup. And then my contracts became modified as business changed. I just did actually a re... I re-signed in 2018 with Universal... Now here's, I'm going to get to this misconception because everybody believes once you are signed with the publisher, 
that you're now going to get placements. Mm-hmm. Correct. You, How does, can you explain to them? Yeah, that's, you, you, you have to be connected with the artist. Somebody's got to be connected directly with the artist because the publisher, all the publisher does is handle the artist's publishing, mm-hmm. but the publisher has nothing to do with placements. Placements because they have, like a, for example, Universal has a, has a division that does movies. Or the who's looking list. And the who's looking list. Right. It's, it's just, that's... Pointless. Well, some people make it happen for them. You know, there's 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 called placements for, for like, like uh, Grey's Anatomy. The girl's dying. Yeah. You and you'll hear, you'll hear in the background. Of, yeah. You only love, 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 love. You know, they, they'll use a little girl singing in the background, and that's not even a song. It's somebody who wrote a piece, and they and they it. segments it out. They yeah. peck it out, and they put it in there. It doesn't have to be a, a full song. Mm-hmm. You make money from that, little money, but getting a song in a movie, like, you know, the publisher never really places you. You don't give the the publisher songs, and then they they go in, they they place it for you with the artist. You have to know the artist, or the producers that you work with have to know the artist. Yeah. And the that's film supervisor, music you know, supervisor. I we say. always we all, we knew like Little Wayne, you know, knew Cool and Dre, and so Little Wayne was direct with Cool and Dre, and we get the songs placed directly with Little Wayne. Yeah, the publisher just was like, "Oh, great, oh, great. Well, let me take a because piece you have of a co- and we'll manage that with you. If you have a co-publishing deal, then they're going to get fifty percent of your publishing, right?" Which is in actuality only twenty five percent of your entire hundred percent that you should be getting. Well, because you get your mechanical royalties directly to you, correct? And then the publishing is the other half. But now it is beneficial because the listen having a publishing deal. It is beneficial, but a lot of people believe it is the publisher's job to get you a song. Placed. First of all, you're not even going to publisher's not going to sign you unless you have songs placed. Something that's coming out that's out there. And the publisher is just going to give you money. The publisher is like a bank, and they administer your catalog. So you need that because I have music playing all over the world. I have music playing on airplanes. You know, I have music playing at some point somewhere around the world, and I want a good publisher to monitor that and let people know around the world that they got to pay their their fees their fees to somebody because Universal is protecting me. And I can call Universal and say, "Look, this guy's playing my song, and it's illegal." And they'll 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 stop it. Yeah, they have they have a big arm. Their arm is strong, and you know BMI doesn't do that. BMI is just watches, monitor monitors the radio, and makes sure that everybody reports what they play. And BMI gives you your your writers writers mechanical. Correct. So it's like a pizza pie that's two hundred percent. The whole the whole pie is two hundred percent instead of one hundred percent. And half of that pie is publishing, and the other half is your mechanical rights. And you cannot assign your mechanical rights to anyone, yet you can delegate your publishing. So I can, if I own 50% of publishing, I can give you 10% of my publishing, and I just write it down in the contract. But I can't give you my writers Writers. for BMI because it's illegal. It's, 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 It's the law. And so, yeah, and that's that's also an important role, you know, in this industry is, you know, 
learning to, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's in doing your business, understanding the paperwork, understanding your publishing, how you get paid from all these different avenues of income. Because um, a lot of people are out there spinning their wheels. They may be extremely talented, but misunderstanding of how the publishing really works, misunderstanding of this. What advice would you give to somebody who's looking to get a better grip of understanding you know, I mean, obviously, it's really going to be well, first-hand experience. Things have changed. I wanted to tell you, things have changed in the sense of that the publishing now is, you know, there's now it's all digital streaming. Mm -hmm. So now publishing yeah, works. The mechanicals are not No, well, the mechanical is still yours, but what happens now is that there isn't any sales of a of a of a product. There's not a physical press product. There's right, not a yeah. physical piece. See, once the physical piece is out of the picture, I sell you this phone, you got the phone. You own the phone, and I know how many phones I've made. And the phone becomes invisible. It becomes like an NFT. It becomes like a digital, like Bitcoin. It's the same kind of thing, Bitcoin and money, with physical CDs and records. Once, once that physical aspect is gone, now... We've lost track of the actual quantity. Yeah, because everything's subscription now. Since and when Napster came around and started fucking, with well, they fucked the, the whole thing up. That is where everything, when that peer to peer, give me what you have on your computer, and I'll yeah. give you what I have on mine. Now we lost control because now there goes our money. Oh, Taylor Swift just sold a million in her first week. She beat out another record from 2017 that she set herself. And, you know, See, back in the 70s, I mean, four, four or five million sales a week, bro. I know. You know what that is? Three, four million records in a one week was nothing. Michael Jackson just sold three million records in one week. Oh, yeah. I can remember even in the late 90s in sync selling 2.3 million when that whole pop era. You see, and that, I mean, that was like sales. People go to the stores to buy records. Physical sales. So now all product. that is changed, and that, that is affected... So no longer, no, no longer people are going after publishing deals because a publisher gives you money, advances you money. But now they would do that, but they would do that with an influencer, with somebody who's got a lot of streams. And, mm -hmm. and you know, a million streams is equal to $1,500. Yeah. So if you got a million streams and it's five writers, split up five, 1500 bucks. It's 300 bucks and take out the taxes too. And you're going to walk away going to get a nice little movie and dinner with your girl. Listen, I'm, and, and this is not, listen, you're going to do music no matter what happens. You're going to make music. Like people don't stop having sex yeah. because even though you know that the population has changed mm -hmm. because of why. Why? I was talking about that with somebody the other day. Well, you and I were talking about that. Was it? Why? Yeah. Hang on a second. I got to go through my uh, fog. Um, the, the population were, went down. Yeah, the population was decreasing is because, oh, people are more, A, they're more in tune with their phone, first and foremost. The relationship abilities, the younger generation, I feel, yeah, no we won't get into that, but it's you have not, to go. You want to go meet a girl? You had to go. Yeah, out you had to, to go out. Her. That's it. That's it. That's it. And you have the communication, just know. like before. So it's like now, you know, 
you can go on your phone and there's no sense of communication where to go see it's, a live band or go get entertained. It's, it's, you had to leave the house. Everything has been affected by the technology. Dude, everything. And so therefore know, publishing is no longer like that. Like it used to. Now be. you need to be the mechanical, the, the, the masters, whoever owns the masters is the guy who gets the money on YouTube. Own the masters. Own the masters. But if you don't own the masters, you have to have a contract, a, a producer contract with the person that that's going to get the masters and you have to get your money. The writers are fucked. The writers are going to get... Yeah. the you, you can't report streams. BMI doesn't pay streams or it, it, it it's just basically a... BMI is like a surcharge they put into the to the licensing, yeah. but there isn't like a clause that okay they're they're working their way there, but they're catching up to something that's already started. Yeah, and even you know the streams on Spotify. So if you're a writer as, on a song and it comes out on YouTube, just keep your YouTube link and show it to friends because that's your money. That's, that's going to be it. Yeah. So that's why, you know, I've had to diversify what I do, and. You know, I, I have to get paid. You have to get paid. I'm looking at the camera. You have to get paid. It could be $200, $100, but you got to get paid. Everything you do because you don't, when you go to the supermarket, you don't get shit for free. You have to, and the young kids today, they don't they don't want to charge. They don't want to, you have to get charged. You have to charge something because, you know, oh, I'll do it for free because I want my name on there's. And you're not. I, I've lost time. so much money because the way the business has changed that I have to. He, you have to charge to do podcasts. Something yeah. they got to pay you for your time and all that. It's just it comes with. That's how we make money. I can't. If I was just doing this because I love it, I'd be broke because I do love it. But you know, I did a talk last night. Uh, you know, yeah, the conference. They give you a speak. hotel room. And, you know, they're going to pay you a fee. But, you know, it's all day the, work. You're working all day long. Yeah. You're talking with people. They want you to be there. People are coming up to you when you're eating lunch. La, 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 la. It's beautiful. But it's at the end of the night, you're tired and you worked. And there's a fee to that that's got to be imposed. When I go play piano and play a, do a part for somebody via email or whatever, you give me work. Yeah. You know, I charge... We have an agreement. It's not a whole lot of money, but he shares what he gets. I get a little piece, and I do this. I'm in Europe. I send him the email Boom. with the track. Right. That's a good thing. We're able to do that remotely. Yeah, that's the best. That's the remotely is awesome. The remote stuff. That's it's cool. great. Now I can work from wherever. Yeah, but the but, characteristics of all the audio equipment has suffered. Right, once you put everything inside the box, even though it's made some amazing advancements in its sonic greatness. And it's convenient too, right? Um, but something had to sacrifice putting everything inside a computer inside of uh, using hardware, right? Yeah, I mean, um, the remote's beauty, but the sacrifice comes in the fact that. Well, I hand it over to an engineer. Oh, yeah, of and course. That you can engineer, even do that engineer's got to have his yeah. outboard gear to do his thing. But, you know, I, I, may, I, may, I may mix my music. And I have my compressors going on and my reverbs and all that. When I'm going to turn over to an engineer, I got to go. I got to take that session and save it as the master session because I got to strip all the yes all the plugins out. The engineer doesn't want anything on it. 
unless it's something that I put an effect on it and it's Gotta maybe a ping ponging thing and it sounds really cool. Well, he'll 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 take it like that because that's just like something that's going on. It's or a patch that may have um, you know motion to it. Mm-hmm. You leave that alone. That's the way it goes. But um, you know, yeah, how important of a is the role of an engineer from when? Because I know you travel a lot, so you're walking into numerous types of studios and studio setups. What's one important or a few important things that you look at? Or that you seek for in an engineer when you walk into a new environment you've never worked with. I have before. an engineer that I use that is a. He's been doing. He used to work with Echo. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a great engineer. He's got a great studio and he's got a uh, Amec in Puerto Rico. The actual Angela Amec that was owned by David Foster, where David Foster wrote the Titanic. Wow. It's sitting in the middle of Puerto Rico in this little mountain house, and he has it there. And he's a he's a Pro Tools teacher, but he's very he's got great ears. He does a lot of reggaeton stuff, but he's gotten he he I'll send him a mix of what I hear, mm-hmm. and then he's able to send me back a close version of it, but sounding better. Yeah. And we've been working for years. Now, do you do a lot of times when you send files to be mixed, do you prefer to do a pre-mix yourself? Oh, yeah, I do So that the engineer, because a lot of times... Uh, 100%. Yeah. I got to. I have sometimes 140 channels, 140 tracks that are, you know, because I'm doing um, doing uh, uh, visual stuff where I'm doing a visual piece that could be 15 minutes long at this, for example, these installations in Puerto Puerto Rico with multiple screens, and I'm doing a lot of movie work, independent, but, you know, they want Atmos and Dolby. So these tracks are, you know, the 15-minute the piece starts one way, and it's traveling, so when I you see the, the whole... Session from the bottom to end. You'll see, it's like it's like a ladder, because I'm using different instruments in each piece, and the the piece starts here with twelve tracks. This is an intro, and then at this point, it opens up into this other piece that's not even related to this piece of music, and then it's got all the instruments that are pertaining to that section here, and then the other one starts here. So when you look at it, it goes like this, and then it ends here. So each one of those. Represents a 12 scene. tracks or ten, seven. They all represent a different, it's like a Cirque du Soleil show. Mm-hmm. It's got different pieces to it. And so I definitely have to give him the way it's got to sound, the way I'm hearing it. Yeah. Because he doesn't get orchestral mixtures, doesn't get. Yeah, so they, got need, so the engineers, they need direction if they're not yeah, side by there's side some guys with you. Like in, 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 at, at Abbey Road Studios in, in England, I worked with Simon Rhodes, who's done, you know, Lord of the Rings, and he's done Star Wars, and that guy reads music, and he's an engineer, and he knows orchestra because he's, he's with the with the London Symphony. Mm-hmm. That guy, you can't give him hip-hop because he's not going to know. Right, yeah. But the one track that I did with the London Symphony did have hip-hop. We mixed it over on our side. Mm -hmm. Simon just recorded the orchestra. 
that time Simon recorded the orchestra. So Simon knows the... Oh, he knows the room. He knows the He gear, knows the knows room everything. and he knows how to give us back what those violins and the levels. Those violins, remember, violins are not electric. No. So those are naturally sounding instruments and those things have to be recorded a certain way because you won't hear it. The way it should be heard, yeah. You don't hear a violin. If a violin, you know, violin's lower sounding. The, the, uh, the, the cello. The, 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 what do you call it? The volume output of a violin playing in a room by itself is the dynamics reaches a certain point. It doesn't go any louder than that. You have to give it dynamics with a, with a unit. Yeah. And he's got to print those violins that hit a certain level so that we can get it at our end. If you record something with a low, with a, with a low, um, you that know, large headroom. No, if you, if you're, if you're really, if it, you know, if you don't even see the wave. Oh yeah. 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 You have to get, you yeah. have to optimize that wave. It's gotta be recorded and you can't do it with, with, uh, with the help of a, of a, of a box. No, you gotta record it. The right way. You have to have that mic close yeah, to the, the, to the instrument, mic placement, several mics. Room placement. Room placement. And then you got to dial you can, it in. You got to give it to me back where I can hear that shit right. And all the levels are all, you see, when you, you see the session, when it comes back, you see the waves are all optimized correctly. And you can see the, just by looking at the waves, you can tell, okay, this guy is pretty low. What happened there? Yeah. Now you got all this noise that's, because the wave is so small. Yeah, more noise than signal. You got, yeah, exactly. So the signal, that's the word signal. I'm, signal I'm, I to noise get, ratio. What's Prevagen? I need Prevagen. Prevagen. Is that it? I, I need, need Prevagen. That. I can go get it for you. I need Prevagen. I you My it. mind forgets <laughs> shit. Well, hey, let's take a break. I'm going to go ahead and get you set up. I want to hear a little bit of your performance and uh, kind of show these viewers kind of why people bring you across the world and hire you to do some of their amazing compositions for them. I still don't get it. You get with, I know I you just, I travel it. coach. They say, Oh shit. He's okay. not going to do a first class ticket. He's going to go coach. Let's get him. Just get him. Let's get him. We'll <laughs> see you in a minute. We'll be back. <laughs> 